0: Well, you know, of all the commandments of God that we've been given, of all of his great commands, when asked which one was the greatest of them all, Jesus responded by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, Mark twelve 30. Didn't leave a lot of room for interpretation there, did he? means if you if you distill uh, the motivation behind all of the commandments down to just one, they really all boil down to us loving God with everything in us because if we get that one commandment right, then all the others will fall into place. You see, if, if God is our number one priority, if He is truly our first love, if we honestly long to please him more than anyone else, including and maybe especially ourselves, then we will naturally want to fulfill all of his other commands because that's his will for us. And if we love him more than anything else, then his will will be our primary concern above all others. That's why it's the first and greatest commandment, because all of the others are dependent upon this one loving God more than anything or anyone else in heaven or on earth and it raises some interesting questions when you meditate on that a little bit like am I obeying that first and greatest commandment when I put myself before other people or am I honoring that commandment when I chase after things in this world as we're so fond of doing I certainly have been in my life. Uh, uh, am I loving God more than anything else when I idolize a relationship in my life other than the one that I have with him, right? And, and here's one that can get really uncomfortable. When you ask yourself, is it possible for me to love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength by living the way that I'm currently living? The honest answer to that question is no. Some things would have to change in my life for me to actually love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what are those things that would need changing? And more importantly, am I willing to make those changes? Okay, because I don't think I don't think as Christians we have a big problem with understanding what God wants from us. Right? Most of what Jesus and his disciples taught is really not that hard to understand. Our problem is generally not one of comprehension, it's one of apprehension. We're afraid, uh, we're afraid of what our lives would really look like if we made all of the changes necessary to pursue God's will for us with absolute abandon, right? What if he uh, wants me to sell my house? and live in something smaller so I can do more with the resources he's given me? And what if he wants me to give up some of my favorite possessions so that I can learn to hold on tightly to some other things that maybe matter more to him, like time spent with him? What, what if he wants me to spend less time with my hobbies so I can spend more time serving someone else? Or what if he wants me to, to actually encourage and build up that person that I can't stand to be around? right? Instead of always trying to take them down a few notches. What if God actually calls you to leave your current lifestyle or life choices in the dust so that you can pursue a calling that looks radically different than the life you're living now? We've been through that, my family and I. Those are unnerving thoughts for many of us. That can, however, turn into a watershed moment in your life when we learn to lay our apprehension down and go for broke in pursuit of God's will for our lives. But I'm telling you, you won't get there by willpower alone. Sheer determination won't carry you all the way through those kinds of life changes and the very real consequences that come with them. All right? there, there has to be something else driving you, something far stronger, far more compelling than just your own determination. And what that something else is, is the key to living the kind of life that wholesale abandons anything and everything that stands between us and God's will for us. The key to that kind of life is that first and greatest commandment. You have to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength loving him has to overwhelmingly be your primary motivation if you're going to answer his calling in your life without quitting without stopping short without compromising or settling for something less and decidedly more comfortable because that's as far as you get with good intentions you get part way usually to the part where life starts to get really uncomfortable and then we settle for something less than what he's planned for us okay The fact is we need more than good intentions and determination. We need to love God more than anything and everything else if we're going to carry out his perfect will for our lives and make a lasting impact on this world. And, And the people who learned that perhaps better than anyone else were his first disciples who were more than ready to stand with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as the soldiers came to arrest him. I mean, Peter pulled out a sword and hacked off a guy's ear. They were ready to go. Jesus, we're with you. Let's rock and roll. And then a few hours later, those same men are running for their lives, even denying Jesus, that they even knew him. Why? Because their own determination wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for them to be all that he'd created them to be they would have to learn to love him more than they loved themselves, more than they loved even their own lives if they had any hope of answering his call and what a call it was on their lives. It's why Jesus in John 21 after his resurrection asked Peter three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Then feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Then tend my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. In other words, if you love me more than anyone or anything else, because you're going to have to, then answer the calling that I've placed on your life. But to be clear, it will require you to love me first, even more than you love yourself. So as we continue our sermon ser- series, working our way through the, uh, these letters of John, we find the Apostle John, sharing this very teaching of Jesus with the early church, which was at the same time being heavily influenced by the teachings of a man named Serenthus and his followers. He was a false teacher uh, that later his teaching led to what we know now as Gnosticism. And we talked about all of that in depth uh, last week. So we won't go through it again today other than to point out that the Gnostic teachings were encouraging these early believers to look to themselves, to their own interests, first as a way of becoming all that they could be. It was the idea that truth and salvation and even divinity were qualities inherent within every person apart from Christ, certainly before Christ, so that nurturing our divine calling meant taking care of ourselves before anything else. It was the antithesis of the teachings and commands of Jesus Christ, which the Gnostics flatly denied the command for us to love God first. And so after making a strong defense of the gospel of Christ in the first chapter of the letter, which was in response to Serenthus and this band of uh, itinerant preachers who were uh, peddling their false gospel, John now turns to this idea of loving God more than anything else, as an imperative for every believer, if we've any hope of actually living out the true gospel calling in our own lives. And, and just like the message in chapter one, this couldn't be any more relevant for us today as our culture, even much of our, our church culture today, is pushing the idea that our focus, even God's focus, should be on our own personal happiness rather than on his glory, which I fear has led many a believer to pursue their own will over his which relegates Jesus Christ and his church to become a part of our lives rather than the primary consuming focus of our lives which again I think is a very fair description of much of the American church today we love Jesus but do we love him more than anything and everything else and especially do we love him more than we love ourselves and here's the point you see Because he doesn't command us to love him more than anything else so that we can have one more rule to follow. No, he he commands us to love him more than anything else because he wants to be closer to us than anything else. But as long as there's something, anything in our lives that we love more than him, we'll never be as close to him as he wants us to be, as close to him as we could be. So let's read it together and see what we can learn from John about loving God as we pick up the letter right where we left off last week at chapter 2. And uh, we'll start by reading the first two verses. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John's picking up on the theme from the end of uh, chapter one, where in uh, the last three verses, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, you remember from last week, That these three verses in chapter one were a response to Serenthus and his followers who claimed they were sinless. And furthermore, they were teaching others they didn't need the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for salvation either. And so uh, John emphatically states that anyone who says they have no sin is a liar. But instead of just leaving it there, he goes on in these first two verses of chapter two to explain the remedy of that sin, which we're all guilty of and which we all need. He says, the really good news for all who sin, which is all of us, is that Jesus Christ is our advocate and the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, as it is written in the ancient Greek, is the word halasmos. It means atonement. In other words, Jesus Christ, our advocate, he is our defender has atoned for our sins. He's taken our guilt upon himself and paid the price of our guilty plea so that we wouldn't have to. And he did that not just for his inner circle or for those first disciples, but he actually made atonement for the sins of the whole, the whole world. And yet we know that the whole world is not saved from their sin. Why? Because we must accept that propitiation, that saving work of Christ by his grace through our faith, so that sin no longer has to be a barrier between us and God, so that we can love Him more than anything else. That's why Jesus overcame that barrier on our behalf. And so, this is John finishing off that thought uh, that he started in chapter one in response to these false teachers who were claiming that they were without sin. And then, as he continues, John starts to teach these early believers how to know if they're following that first and greatest commandment because there were many in the church at the time who, because of these false teachings, were beginning to question what it really meant to be saved and whether or not they were actually living according to God's will. So John is attempting to address that confusion as he continues. Let's read verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Gee, John, that's a little tough. So he says, look, everyone in the church says they love God. Even these false teachers say they love God, but truly loving God means keeping his commandments. So if you truly love him like you say you do, John says, then you'll live like Jesus lived. You'll live your life according to his word, obeying his commandments. And John is so adamant about this point that he says, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Now, hold on, John. You just got done saying that none of us is without sin, and we know that sin is disobedience to God's commandments, so how can any of us possibly be saved if we all disobey his commandments, right? That seems impossible, and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense what he's saying. Well, it's the difference between knowing about Christ and actually knowing Christ. John, for the record, is talking about the latter here in verse four when he says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. That word know in the original Greek is ginosko, which uh, is not simply knowing facts about Jesus or even being able to recognize him working in other people. It's actually knowing him personally. So for those who truly know Christ, our relationship to sin has changed. There's still temptation. At times, we still fail. There's still sin. We may even go through seasons where we struggle with ongoing sin. But the one who has a true relationship with Jesus Christ will, first of all, recognize that sin for what it is, will confess it for what it is and walk out the process of repentance, even sometimes when that's two steps forward and one step back. But we persevere because we love God and our desire is to please and glorify him. So we're willing to walk out sometimes that difficult process of suffering the loss of our own will and our own desires in order to serve his will and his desire for us. It's loving God more than we love ourselves. It's not always getting everything right, which for most of us is an ongoing process, right, that occurs over a lifetime. It certainly is for me. On the contrary, For those who merely know about Christ but don't actually know him, their relationship to sin is something altogether different. Those who do not know Jesus Christ can sin without recognizing it as sin. There's no conviction. There's no confession. Even when it's pointed out to them, there's no remorse and no repentance. And the reason there's no recognition of sin and no repentance of sin is because there's no relationship with Jesus Christ. They truly don't know him. And so John says the way you'll know the difference is the way they interact with God's word, with his commandments. Do they recognize his commandments and live their lives according to those commandments, failures and all, right? Or do they live in a way that is completely contrary to his word, denying his commandments and yet still claim to know him? That describes these Gnostics that he was referring to. And I'd say this is, Actually, where some significant elements of the American church are living today, unfortunately. Partially, at least, because we've been teaching in the church for a few generations now that all you have to do in order to have a relationship with Jesus Christ is to say a simple prayer, to go through the motions of repeating certain words after someone else. We call it a sinner's prayer, and then all of a sudden, poof, Now you have a relationship with him. And yet, when Jesus called men and women to believe in him, he never said, repeat these words after me, and then led them in a sinner's prayer, did he? No. Over and over and over again, what did he say? Follow me. Why? Because there's a big difference between simply believing in Jesus And actually following Jesus. His own brother James said, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, right? The demons believe in Jesus, but they don't follow him. That's the difference. And my fear for the church today is that there are many who claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ who may well even believe who he says he is, yet they're not actually following him. There's no relationship there. And the way, according to John, that we can tell the difference is how they live their lives. Are they following God's word, his commandments, or are they living lives which are completely contrary to God's word? sure enough, you don't have to look far today to find many people in the church who are living lives completely contrary to the quite easy-to-understand commands of God, and yet they neither recognize their sin nor repent of their sin. Why? Because there's no relationship with Jesus Christ. But what makes it even worse is there are church leaders, pastors, elders, overseers, teachers in the church today who are teaching that we have nothing to repent for. That no matter our lifestyle or lack of adherence to God's commands that we're doing just fine and we have a spot reserved for ourselves in heaven simply because he loves us. Hey, he does love us. But according to Jesus, we have to love him back. There has to be a relationship. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Yet there are pastors and authors and church leaders who are teaching that regardless of what we do or how we live, God's love will win the day and we'll all end up in heaven. Okay, do you understand? This is precisely what John was confronting in this letter, that very same teaching. And just to underscore his point, Saranthus, this guy who was leading the charge here against uh, the gospel, this pre-gnostic movement, this false teaching, he was himself a Jew, uh, according to numerous ancient scholars and historians. You can read uh, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Hippolytus. They all tell us that Serenthus was trained by the Egyptians in Egypt under their pagan religion, and yet claiming to be in right relationship with the Hebrew God. Yet all you had to do To see that this guy was actually very far from God was to observe his own life, which was clear evidence that he was following the teachings of this world, not the teachings of God. John makes it clear, we all sin, we all struggle, we all fail, we all fall short of the goal, but if we have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, if we truly love him, then his word, not someone else's word, his word, not whatever's popular at any given point in history, his unchanging word, his commands will be the basis, the creed by which we live our lives. Let's keep reading. Verses 7 through 11. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John starts out this next section with Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Uh, The reason he says that is because the false teachers were accusing him of being the one who was introducing a new set of rules. For the church to follow, rules that they said were actually not intended by God, rules that were oppressive and exclusionary and intolerant, which is exactly what we see today happening as the church continues uh, to teach orthodox doctrine in scripture, which has been understood in the same simple and clear manner for thousands of years. But all of a sudden, We have popular voices in the American church claiming that God never intended for scripture to mean what it actually says, but now they have the real understanding of what Jesus's commands mean, which frankly is based more on our current cultural sensibilities, the climate of our culture right now than anything that's actually written in the Bible. And so facing this very same type of criticism by people claiming to have a new revelation, John says to his readers, look, guys, what I'm writing to you is nothing new. This is what scripture has always taught us, and yet at the same time, it is new, because we now have the ultimate example of this commandment being lived out in the life of Jesus Christ in a way that no one had ever seen it before. In fact, Jesus himself described it as a new commandment. He said, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. That's the new part. The way that we love one another. And then he says, you also are to love one another. That same way, John 13, 34. And so this is what John's talking about in this letter because the false teachers were breaking their fellowship with the body, with the church, and they were leading other people away to do the same thing. So John says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, you're still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John is pointing out that loving God means loving each other. Really, to be more accurate, John is saying, if we can't love each other, we can't love God. In other words, you can't hate your brothers and sisters in Christ and claim to be saved. The two are incongruent. They cannot be reconciled. If you truly love God, then you must also love your brother the way that Jesus loves you. And by the way, he's specifically referring to other believers here. That's an important point. It means how we actually love God can be measured by how much we actually love God one another, other Christians. Okay, without, without question, we're commanded to show the love of Christ to the whole world. That's a part of sharing the gospel, no doubt. But how we love other believers is actually quite different. Jesus prayed, he said, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours, John 17:9. He also said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends John 15:13 and when he says friends it's an allusion to other believers. The apostle Paul said as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith Galatians 6:10. And of course we know Jesus said by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. He's directly referring to other Christians, which is actually very interesting if you think about it. Jesus didn't say that unbelievers will know whether or not we're really true Christians based on how we love them, the unbelievers, those outside the church. And yet based on our contemporary church culture, you'd think that was the key to being an effective witness for Christ. Uh, You can slam the church all day long. In fact, that's become a quite popular thing to do among Christians today as long as you show the love of Jesus to the outside world. But that's not what Jesus said. He said the way those outside of the church will know that you are who you say you are is by the way that you love each other inside of the church. So the authenticity of our testimony, as far as the world is concerned, according to Jesus, rises and falls on the authenticity of our love that we have for each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ, which is what John was pointing out in this letter here because, again, the false teachers were dividing the church to the point that they were beginning to hate one another. And John says, don't go around telling people that you love God if you hate each other because you don't love God. In fact, you cannot love God if you hate your fellow Christians. He doesn't leave a lot of room for alternate interpretations here. He's pretty clear that loving God means loving each other. So, so great. What does that kind of love look like within the church? What does that look like in everyday practice? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse in Romans uh, 12, 9 through 13. He says, Let love be genuine. This is to the church. In other words, don't put on a face when you come to church or when you see each other outside of church meetings. Be real. Be genuine because we can't love each other if we're constantly pretending to be okay when we're not okay. We can't love each other if we don't know what's really going on in one another's lives. We can't love each other if we don't let each other in. We have to learn to be real with one another if our love is to be genuine. Paul continues, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We have to reject anything and everything that tears each other down. So talking about each other in a negative light when that person isn't around, Uh, trying to make others feel small so that we can feel better about ourselves, right? Criticizing other Christians in a way that is not constructive, putting ourselves in what we want Before others, we can't love each other if we don't reject what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And then Paul says, Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. We should be going out of our way to honor one another, to build each other up, not to tear each other down. And then he says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. One of the ways that we show love toward each other is by serving. It's not just about hanging around. It's about engaging in service, everyone doing their part, the part that God designed us for so that we can function as a body, not just a gathering once a week. Where everyone comes together and we're working together. Paul continues, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. We don't have time to work through all of this, but listen our character and our commitment are shaped through prayer as we pray with one another and for one another. And finally, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Every one of us should be contributing with our time, with our money with our effort, everyone should do their part to contribute to the ministry happening in and through the church, the body of Christ. And one of the ways we do that is by showing hospitality to every single person that walks through those doors. I know that uh, some days it's a lot easier to get your coffee and then sit down and talk to no one, right? because we get weary, uh, we get worn out, and the last thing we feel like is connecting with anyone other than a hot cup of caffeine. I get that. But contributing means giving, even when we don't feel like it. So that every person who comes into this building or encounters us outside of this building should feel like they've come home. Okay? Everything on this list of how to love one another, everything on this list should be hallmarks of the church. They should be hallmarks of upcountry church because doing all these things, it's the difference between people out in our community actually believing that we're either true Christians, true representations of Christ, or just phony religious hypocrites. How well we love one another in here determines how effective our testimony is out there according to Jesus, okay? When it comes to being an effective witness to unbelievers, this is as big as it gets. Remember all of the commandments of God, of all of them. Jesus said the greatest one is that we love Him. Yet John says here we cannot love Him if we don't love each other. I just uh, saw this quote the other day by the Archbishop of Philadelphia, uh, Charles Chaput. He said this: When young people ask me how to change the world, I tell them to love each other, get married, stay faithful to one another, have lots of children and raise those children to be men and women of Christian character. Faith is a seed. It doesn't flower overnight. It takes time and love and effort. The future belongs to people with children, not with things. Things rust and break, but every child is a universe of possibility that reaches into eternity, connecting our memories and our hopes in a sign of God's love across the generations. That's what matters. God has called us to love one another. And indeed, loving each other the way that Jesus loves us will over time. It will change the world. Okay, now... John takes a moment here in the middle of this letter because he's been laying it on pretty thick for almost two chapters. uh, The gravity of how we live our lives and and the relationships that we have uh, and how that affects the authenticity of our faith to the degree uh, to which we love God. And so uh, these are some pretty stern warnings and yet John absolutely loves and cares for the church. As a pastor, he wants to encourage them. So he takes a moment here right in the middle to encourage the church by reminding them that they can live the way that John is saying they must, right? Don't be discouraged. You can do this because of who they are and what God has done in their lives. And so he does that in these next three verses. And as he addresses them, interestingly, he does that according to their different levels of spiritual maturity that were represented in the church. So let's read it together, verses 12 through 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. So again, John is encouraging the church. He's saying, look, I'm writing this to all of you, no matter where you are in your walk with Christ, because you're all capable of following this teaching. So be encouraged, okay? You can do this. You are true believers. Your sins have been forgiven. You've overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You're strong, and God abides in you. So keep your chin up, because God is with you, and I, your pastor, I am with you. And then he continues, verses 15 through 17. So after telling us that to love God, we must keep his commandments, we must also love our fellow believers, John now says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's important to note that when John uses the word world in this verse, he's talking about the ways of this world. More specifically, he's talking about the organized rebellion against God by mankind, okay? He's not suggesting in any way that Christians should hate the material world or the people in it. Of course, uh, of course we're supposed to love human beings in the world. Jesus said, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only son, John three sixteen. So if God loves the world, then so should we. Uh, what we're not supposed to be in love with, John says, are the ways of this world. That's his message here, that loving God means rejecting the ways of this world. Just as James said in chapter 4, verse 4 of his letter to the church, he writes, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, there are Christians... Who, over the centuries, have twisted this concept to mean that believers in God should never have anything to do with the world whatsoever, should never even experience pleasure of any kind (laughs) from the world. Uh, The first century historian, uh, Flavius Josephus, he he wrote about the Essenes, it was an ancient uh, sect of temple Judaism, and they would not have intercourse with their wives while they were pregnant just to make the point that marriage was in no way intended by God for pleasure, but strictly to produce children, which is, of course, absurd. God created us to be able to experience pleasure for a reason. He wants us to enjoy this life and each other. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 talks all about that, and so John's not taking issue with that here at all. What he's saying is you can't be in love with the ways of this world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, which are temporary anyway, by the way. He says those things are passing away. You can't be focused on and in love with those temporary things and also be focused on and in love with an eternal God at the same time. You have to choose one or the other. We cannot serve two masters, as Jesus says in Matthew six twenty-four. And for many Christians today, especially uh, those like us who live in affluent societies, uh, I would say this is a profound problem, okay? Because as much, as much as we think we are biblically minded, I'm not sure we always appreciate just how much this world actually dominates our way of thinking right? Just ask yourself and be honest with yourself. When I, when I think about what it means to be successful, what do I picture in my mind? For many of us, I bet that picture includes a lot of what the world defines as success. The kinds of things we own, our level of income, our careers, how well we've done materially, how much we're liked by other people, how much influence we have. And yet, if you look at the lives of these apostles and even the prophets and judges before them, they died alone in prisons, hung on crosses, burned alive tortured to death with no possessions, no money, no savings, and no friends standing by them. Now put yourself in that position and ask yourself if you lived and died like that, like they did, entirely rejected by the world, devoid of any earthly possessions and utterly alone, would you still consider yourself, your life, to be successful? I don't think many of us would, and yet the writer of Hebrews, after describing many of these great men and women of the faith, he said this. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Hebrews 11, 35 through 40. Does that sound like success to us? I don't think it does, not for most of us, and yet these people's lives were the very definition of success in God's eyes. See, I think we've been fooled into following the ways of this world to the point that we don't even realize how much our thinking is affected by it. When when you think about someone being beautiful, how do you picture them? Is it beauty by the world's standards? or is it beauty by God's standards because those are two very different standards we've been fooled into following the ways of this world thinking that we can love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and still love the ways of this world at the same time and John says I'm sorry you cannot do both loving God means rejecting the ways of this world and look just to make you feel better I'm still learning this lesson in my own life every day because we've been programmed to believe that the world knows what's best and it's so easy to fall into that way of thinking. It has become too easy for us to be okay with things that the world says are okay, even though God very plainly says they're not okay. So I continue to ask myself the question that I've been asking for years now, is it possible for me to obey God's greatest commandment, to love him with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength by living the way that I'm currently living. And I'll just tell you, at at times on this journey, I've found the answer to be no, which means some things have had to change in my life. And then, of course, I have to be willing to make those changes. And and I'm sure I'm, (laughs) I'm not done yet. There are most certainly more changes to come. You see, it's all a part of loving God being willing to ask yourself those hard questions and then doing something about it when the answers require you to make real changes in your life. And so I'm just asking you this morning, are you open to that? Are you willing to make some changes if need be? What if God actually calls you To leave your current lifestyle or life choices in the dust so that you can pursue a calling that looks radically different than the life you're living now? Are you willing to do that? It's not about another set of rules to follow, it's about being as close to Christ as you can possibly be. So, what if He calls you to uh, love others in a way that you never have before? What if he calls you to a level of commitment to his word or to his church that you never even considered before? Are you willing to make those kinds of changes? Are you willing to actually live your life differently than you have been? You'll have to. You'll have to. If above everything else, you're going to spend the rest of your life loving God.